Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And uh, to begin today's episode, I want to start by sketching out a little scenario to help you uh, help you imagine something and investigate your intuitions. So I want you to imagine you are waiting on a friend in the lobby of a casino hotel. Uh, maybe you're in Las Vegas uh, and you realize you've, you've got some time to kill, maybe 15 minutes before your friend gets there and you've got a few spare bucks in your pocket. You kind of get the itch to go blow it on one of the slot machines that keeps making all these exciting noises nearby. And by the way, this is just to illustrate a point. This is not behavior that we're necessarily advising uh, because, uh, oh, I don't know, we've done episodes on slot machines before. And, uh, you know, even if you you plan to lose all the money you bet, there's always the chance that you just might have too much fun with them. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Back in 2015, we did an episode titled one Arm Bandits, The Science of Slot Machines. Uh, and I, I found it rather illuminating uh, myself. So I'd recommend anyone uh, who's interested in just, just to what extent these are fair or unfair. Uh, I recommend go back and, and listen to that episode. Spoiler, the house always wins. Now, I haven't been to Vegas, but from what I understand, there's a lot of fun stuff to do other than gambling. Oh, yeah. Vegas is great. I, um, uh, my family and I went out there for the first time uh, a few m- months back. And yeah, there's some great restaurants. Uh, you can see the Hoover Dam uh, not too far away. And they have a tremendous Meow Wolf. So a uh, lot, lot to see there. Is that one Omega Mart? That's Omega Mart. Yeah, it's, it's special. It's, it's pretty great. But anyway, so back to the scenario. So uh, you decide you're going to blow some money at a slot machine. You you go up to the machine, you put your money in, but you're new to this and you don't see the button that spins the digital wheel. So you start looking around and there's a lady sitting at the slot machine next to you and she plays these things all the time. She sees you scanning the machine in confusion 
And she leans over and says, it's right here. And she reaches across and presses the button for you. And then you see the wheel spin on the digital screen. It slows down. There's a ding. And it's a bust. You lose your bet. Now, everybody's reaction to the scenario might be somewhat different. But I think an extremely common reaction uh, for people to have would be annoyance and a feeling of having been wronged by the woman who pushed the button for you. And this could be for a number of reasons. Some of those reasons might be purely social, like it might feel like a violation of your personal space by a stranger. You might be upset that somebody robbed you of the fun of pressing a button, because sometimes it's, it can be fun to press a button. But beyond all that, I think a very common reaction, even among people who rationally know better, would be a feeling of having been cheated. This random stranger didn't just invade your, your personal space and interrupt your fun. She lost your money for you. It's her fault you lost that money and did not win. At the same time, you would probably realize correctly that a slot machine is not a game of skill. It's a game of chance, and thus it literally makes no difference whatsoever to your probability of winning, whether you push the button or someone else does. It is not as if you placed a bet on, uh, you know, th throwing darts at a dartboard or something, where conceivably you might be better at hitting the, hitting the center than the person who throws the dart for you. Everybody knows that with the slot machine, it truly does not matter who presses the button. And yet, even though we know this rationally, I think I think if I personally were in this situation, it would be really hard for me to shake the feeling that this stranger had cheated me out of possible winnings. So I would know it's not true, but it would just be an extremely tenacious illusion that whoever presses the button really matters. Yeah, this is interesting to think about. I hadn't really thought about it so much. You know, I, we'll get into the idea of uh, of other rituals uh, associated with this sort of behavior, like, you know, am I wearing my lucky shirt or not um, uh, when I go to gamble or when I go to watch my favorite sports team or take a test, etc. Um, so it's interesting to think about how this scenario, I push the button versus a stranger pushes the button, uh, how that compares or doesn't compare to the luck-related scenario of I push the button with my lucky shirt on or I push the button without my lucky shirt on. Are we more likely to disregard the the, the logic of the latter? Um, what if we let the stranger wear our lucky shirt? Uh, that still doesn't seem right. Well, yeah, these are all, uh, you know, who presses the button, whether they're wearing their, their lucky charm or not. Uh, these are all variations on the idea that there is something you can do to increase or decrease your chance of winning at the slot machine. And it's just not true. Like n none of these things influence what your chances of winning are. Your chances are equally low no matter what. Yeah, your chances are all locked up in that machine already. They are programmed into it. And, and who pushes that button? Who actually ends up executing the final, um, uh, the, the final button push? Whatever that that the form that takes in a given gambling machine, it's already been figured out by the machine. Right. And so I sketched out this scenario to illustrate a concept in psychology called the illusion of control. So. The illusion of control refers to a common type of cognitive illusion, a mistaken pattern of reasoning in which we overestimate the extent to which our choices or behavior can affect outcomes, even totally random or uncontrollable outcomes. So according to illusion of control theory, 
either we think we have control over an outcome when we have no control at all, or we do have some control, but we think we have more control than we actually do. So today we're, we're kicking off a series where we're going to take a look at research on the illusion of control. To what extent the concept is a valid description of how we think, uh, what the evidence for it is, some criticisms of the concept, how it works in theory and practice, and why we might experience it to the extent that we do. Yeah, and uh, it's going to be interesting to, to, to talk about this and think about it, especially in a world that can very often feel rather out of our control. And that, as we'll discuss, plays into the whole scenario. That's right. But before we dive into the research on this subject, I thought it would be good to kick off with some just classic examples that we can think of from day-to-day -day life, stuff you don't even need an experiment to see. You can just, you know, it happens to us all the time. We do it. Uh, you already mentioned, Rob, the idea of uh, lucky rituals that people put in place to help steer the outcome of a public event on which the ritual has no, no rational reason to have any influence. So whether your football team wins, that, you know, does that depend on whether you're wearing your lucky shirt? And people might participate in lucky rituals of, like this for a number of different reasons. Not all of those reasons would be a genuine expectation that it will help influence the outcome of the event. But to the extent that someone does feel it will actually change the probability of you getting the, the outcome you want, that would be an example of the illusion of control. Yeah, yeah, because sometimes these activities, you know, various lucky items, like sometimes it's it's probably more in the fun category than anything. Yeah. You know, you wear your lucky scarf to go enjoy a football game uh, with other football fans. You know, um, yeah, it's just a fun thing to do. Or just to regulate your own emotions. Like it might be literally functional, but operating on the self instead of on the external world. Yeah, yeah. And as always, you know, to what degree does something become... Um, maladaptive uh, or a hindrance. I mean, you, you do hear cases of, okay, someone's wearing their, their lucky shirt uh, to a game. Okay, fair. Uh, someone's wearing their lucky underwear to a game. Fair. Uh, someone's wearing their lucky underwear to this game, and they wore it to last game and hasn't been washed <laughs> since last game. Uh, you hear about cases like that as well, and I don't know. Um, I, I, I think maybe in some of those cases, there's another discussion uh, to have there, but I don't know. Sports and their rituals. Um, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, that's the version that's truly maladaptive. Now, other times, you know, I think we shouldn't dismiss the importance of religious faith uh, in all of this, particularly regarding amulets, um, various traditions, various uh, religions out there um, have some sort of an amulet tradition, some sort of a, essentially a lucky charm tradition, be it a, you know, a crucifix or a small statue of a deity that you may carry around with you. And that may be used casually or, you know, very de de devotedly. I, you know, there are different approaches to that as well. There's a whole spectrum uh, in, in that area of religious faith as well. Well, yeah, and I'd say that might well uh, be one of those things that is literally efficacious in some way, maybe not in the sense of changing the outcome of a game or something, but it does change something about you and is helpful in that way. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the notion that, a lot of times the addition of a lucky totem uh, or a lucky practice of some sort uh, very often does not necessarily induce added cost or burden. You know, even if we're mostly dismissive of the idea that said item or said activity will enhance our luck or will make some sort of um, experience 
uh, you know, pass us by with more ease. Uh, even if we're not, we don't have a huge investment in that idea, it kind of comes down to, well, why not, right? Is it going to hurt? I might as well have the amulet on me. Uh, maybe it'll help. If there's a 1% chance it helps, great, because I, all it is is sitting in my pocket. Right. And, you know, uh, I plan to get into this more in one of the later episodes in the series, maybe in part two. Uh, but there is a question of to the extent that we experience an illusion of control, why do we experience one? Are there ways in which it might actually be beneficial to human life, even if it's generating false beliefs? Yeah, I mean, we kind of get into that that, that basic area of like, yeah, if it makes life a little easier and it's not hurting you, it's not hurting other people, then why not? Okay, I want to mention another example from everyday life. This one comes up a lot when people think about illusion of control. The closed door button on an elevator. Does that button actually do anything? Uh, I, I think this, this example actually has two levels of possible illusion of control. The first one, and we can quibble with whether this counts as illusion of control or not, but the first level is the question of whether the closed door button actually closes the door. Uh, I was reading some articles about this and was getting some contradictory conclusions from them, but... Uh, like according to there was an article in The New York Times that cited some people in the elevator industry who says who say that in most cases, the button actually does not change how fast the door closes. Maybe it does in some percentage of elevators, but in the majority, at least within the United States, it doesn't. Uh, I was reading in another article that uh, lifts in the UK are more likely to have a fully functional closed door button that does accelerate how fast the door shut. Elevators in the US most of the time close on a timer. And even when the closed door button is functional, it, it probably works on, on a delay from when you press it instead of immediately. So it's really questionable how much faster, if at all, the doors will close after the button is pressed. So uh, I think the answer is not totally clear on how often the closed door button does anything in the States, but many people consider these buttons in the U.S. just a, a placebo. It does nothing it, except maybe makes the passengers feel better. Sometimes I feel like the closed door button exists mostly to enhance the awkwardness of reaching for the open door button when someone tries to catch the elevator behind you while the doors are clo closing. Uh -huh. Will they correctly assume that you were trying to help them or will they think that you were desperately trying to keep them from boarding the elevator? Like, close faster. <laughs> no one else on this elevator with me. That's a good point. Now, on the other hand, I think you could make a good case that that the closed door button shouldn't count as illusion of control because there is genuine ambiguity about whether it does something or not. Like people mm -hmm. really don't have information that should tell them whether or not it works. And there's a reasonable assumption that it should work. So pressing it is rational, even wh whether or not it works, because you have a reasonable expectation that it would. Yeah. And it says it works. It has, what it, you're just doing what the button is inviting you to do. Exactly. But there's the second level of door close button that I think is definitely illusion of control, which is, have you ever seen somebody who's in a hurry, like get in an elevator, they not only press the button, which may or may not work, they press the button after watching somebody else press it already. Like, oh, mm -hmm. the other guy didn't press it right. I need to press it to make sure it'll work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes <laughs> you get on, on board an elevator and there's this moment of uncertainty. Did the other person press it? You didn't see them press it. You would maybe assume they did. And it might be a little awkward if you press it now, because then you're saying, like, I'm not sure you did this right. I'm not sure you did it. I'm going to press it. But, yeah, if you see them do it, that is an extra level of uh, <laughs> of, uh, of 
of, of social awkwardness right there. And I guess you're leaning into the idea that, okay, if I press it more, uh, then it'll be more likely to comply. Exactly. Yeah, maybe there is reasoning of that sort. Like, I wonder if button presses are cumulative. Yeah, I, I often fall into this as well. I mean, I'll, I'll do this thing where I go to uh, use the, the clicker to lock the car. And I won't press it once. I'll press it two or three times, uh, which um, uh, confounds uh, members of my family when I do this. But for some reason, like, it just feels like three is more certain, even though there's no cumulative effect there. There's not like, okay, if you press it three times to lock it, you have to press it three times to unlock it, which I don't know. I'd kind of like that feature um, uh, personally, but that's just not how it works. One click should do it, but my mind thinks additional clicks would be necessary. Triples is best. Then you know it's safe. That's true. <laughs> but it's not true. It's uh, it's just uh, one of those things we do. Uh, another thing, another like clear example of this uh, one that I think a lot of us encounter rather frequently, and another potential placebo button is the crosswalk button. And a lot of the same situations apply here. You know, you get up there to the crosswalk, there's someone else already standing there. You assume they pressed it already, but you're going to press it as well. Or you're waiting on it, it seems to be taking forever. You know it's been pressed. You've pressed it once, maybe press it two or three more times to let it know that you mean business, you need to get across the street. Uh, throw up the red uh, light, throw up the little uh, green walking or white uh, light up walking man. Also, as with the elevator button, there is legitimate question over whether the button does anything or not. That's right. I was looking into this a little bit and the broad answer on whether the cross button works at all seems to be a resounding it depends. So different <laughs> countries, different city traffic systems, um, they're going to they're gonna have the button function differently. Sometimes it actually speeds up crossings. Other times it doesn't. Uh, but what do we do? We push it anyway. And part of that is, again, you're standing there. You probably don't have anything else to do. Push it a few more times and see if it works. As we already established, sometimes it's just fun to push a button. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're in a situation where you either have no control or you realize you have a limited amount of control. What can you do? You can't get out there and stop cars. You can't stop traffic, but you can press the button again and again. And it feels like at least you're doing something. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the illusion of control also applies to situations in which we, you know, experience anxiety due to perceived lack of control. And and one of these, and I can relate to this a bit, is uh, is flying. Mm. Uh, two examples I've read about with this scenario are, of course, uh, you know, there's, of course, pre and during flight routines. Uh, many of these are, are so slight that we might not even think about them as being uh, you know, pre, pre-flight rituals having to do with uh, an illusion of control. Um, the examples given in the air travel design guide include things like wearing comfy clothing or brushing one's, one's teeth before a flight. Uh, I don't know. I, those just sound like good things to do before a long flight. Yeah. Um, but they Is also that controlling thought, an outcome. I mean, that just seems like th- that's what you do to feel good. Yeah. But I mean, I, I guess, and I can relate to this a bit. It's like maybe like feeling good is that thing you have control over. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you become more indulgent of those in a way to sort of, you know, to make something that can be uncomfortable, more comfortable, which just obviously you want to do that. But also it's like so many things are out of my control here, but the exact head pillow have I have is in my control. The exact playlist I download ahead of time is in my control. How, you know, which movie I download to my phone prior to the flight, that's within my control. I will do that, and I'll put a lot of effort into that. And maybe from all of that uh, effort at control, there could be some conceptual creep where actually it makes you feel like the plane is less likely to crash. 
Um, yeah, I mean, and I don't even know if necessarily everyone's mind directly goes there, you know, but it's yeah. like, you know, you're, you're dealing with uh, one thing that they, when I was reading this air travel design guide website uh, that they pointed out, you know, it's like, there's a lot going on when you fly, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're traveling, your, 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 your circadian rhythms are, are interrupted. You may mm-hmm. eat lunch three times in a, in a given day, that sort of thing. <laughs> and then there are all these other constraints. So there's a lot going on, um, in the mind and in the body. Uh, they also cite gamification as a as a way that we uh, uh, interact with this illusion of control. Uh, I found this bit interesting. This is a quote. The airport is a unique type of architectural typology where the spaces are subdivided and arranged to usher large groups of people to move unidirectionally. This encourages people to develop strategies to game the system and to feel competitive with other passengers moving through the airport. Oh my God, that's right. I feel seen that that's like, I do not, I'm not normally a competitive walker, like trying to get ahead of people walking, you know, around me on the sidewalk. The only scenario in which I catch myself doing that is at the airport. And I want, yeah, that may be right that it's like, because it's funnel, you know, it's structured to have everybody moving in the same direction. And it's so, uh, uh, yeah, controlled like that. Um, it it some for some reason makes you feel like I've got to get in front of this this guy here. You know, I've got. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting to think about it from a design standpoint where a lot of control needs to be taken away from people going through the system. But you also need to give them a sense of control, control over little things and uh, and also realize that there's going to be this illusion of control in place as well. But you have another example to to, uh, to to bring up here. And this this one is even more fun than flying. <laughs> Oh, I wonder if you had the the same experience. So I was thinking back to childhood, and this may be an embarrassing admission, but I'm thinking about the illusory functionality of of objectively non-responsive video game controls. A couple of examples here. I am at the Pizza Hut. I'm a little kid. I desperately want to play the Neo Geo machine or the X-Men arcade cabinet, but I have no quarters, so I can't play. But while these machines are idle, there is a kind of pre-recorded gameplay demo that loops on the screen. So it looks like somebody's playing. You know, the characters are walking around fighting the bad guys and stuff. And according to vague memories, I, I can't be sure I'm right about this, but I think I would sometimes go up to the machine and falsely believe that I was maybe somewhat partially controlling the gameplay in this demo by moving the joystick around without putting money in. Or maybe what I'm remembering is that I would stare at the machine while the demo's going, and I would not be touching it, but I would be imagining that this were possible. Another variation is a trick sometimes uh, I think people would play on their little siblings with home video game consoles. So instead of fighting over whose turn it is to play Mario, maybe the the big sister actually plays Mario and gives the little sister another controller, which is not plugged in to make her think she's playing while actually she's just watching the big sister play on the screen and pressing buttons that do nothing. Uh, I recall this happening around me and being surprisingly convincing. I guess maybe it's more convincing with some games than others, but uh, but I, I remember I did this as well with arcade games when I was a little kid, and uh, arguably with the I mean the X Men arcade cabinet that was that was a pretty great game, but oh, yeah. on the other hand, uh, you were probably better off just thinking you were playing it, <laughs> looking back at it from a modern standpoint. Uh, I really liked being Colossus and doing the roar. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, 
The uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's fu- funny. Uh, I had an experience with this just the other day. I, uh, we were out to eat at a place that had arcade machines, and they were old arcade machines. And my son uh, and one of his friends, um, and my son's 11 now, uh, they went up to these machines, and I hadn't given them any quarters. And I was thinking, I should give them some quarters so they can play these machines. But they're over there moving the sticks around, watching the screen. And I was like, oh, I think they're just pretending to play. Oh. Uh, and then I was like, I think maybe they're a little too old to be doing that. Um, and then I asked him, do you guys want some real quarters? And they're like, oh, these machines are free. So uh, it, was, it was a non-issue. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I, there reaches a, there, you reach a point where you outgrow it, uh, for sure, mm-hmm. where you, you, you don't just want to watch the, the games. You don't just want to watch other people play these games. You want to get in there, even if you are going to fail miserably and just have to sink more quarters in the thing. I will pay the endless tax to be Colossus. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what was your X-Men arcade game character? Ooh, uh, you know, oftentimes when I would play, it, there were like a lot of people. So it's like whoever you could get. But, you know, obviously Colossus, Wolverine, Eve, oh, Cyclops was pretty great. He had that, the, the I-beam attack, you know, that would really yeah. tear up the screen. I remember Colossus was my first pick and Nightcrawler was my second. Oh, yeah, he had a good attack as well. I mean, really, I would just be happy. I was happy to be playing the X-Men arcade game. All right. Well, I think maybe we should talk about some of the uh, research history on the illusion of control, some of the papers that have explored this topic in the past. And uh, though this phenomenon had been, I think, noticed previously in a variety of ways, it gets the name illusion of control from important research by the American psychologist Ellen J. Langer, who published a paper in 1975 called The Illusion of Control in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Langer was born in 1947. She's uh, also known for her work on aging and mindfulness theory. Uh, I also want to call out that she uh, was a series consultant on a BBC series titled The Young Ones, but this is not the classic comedy series, but rather a documentary that explored uh, reminiscence therapy. Uh, I'm, I'm not familiar either way. What, what's the comedy series? Oh, The Young Ones? Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a classic uh, British um, a comedy series about these young men living in a like a dormitory house type situation. Um, yeah, and uh, they would also have musical guests on the show. Like Motorhead was on one of the episodes. Uh, nice. Yeah. So uh, yeah, cl- classic classic series. I'm I'm sure it, it may have come up in passing on Weird House Cinema before, uh, but I have a feeling in the future we'll probably touch on some some films on Weird House Cinema that include actors from that show. All right. But the Young Ones, a series that she was associated with, this was a documentary series that came like decades later. Okay, okay. Uh, But uh, in the 1975 paper, The Illusion of Control, uh, Langer defined the phenomenon somewhat more narrowly than we've been talking about. Uh, She defined the illusion of control as, quote, an expectancy of a personal success probability inappropriately higher than the objective probability would warrant. So I'm not going to do a a detailed breakdown of uh, Langer's full paper here because there are like six experiments total, a lot of variables being tested. Uh, But I'll summarize the main idea and a couple of highlights that stuck out to me. Uh, So her intro mentions a bunch of different reasons for thinking that, in her words, quote, while people may pay lip service to the concept of chance, they behave as though chance events are subject to control. 
And uh, she, she produces a lot of uh, examples given to, to provide prima facie evidence of this idea before the experiments are carried out. And one of these examples uh, that I thought was interesting was a sociological observation of how people treat dice when gambling. Uh, she mentions particularly behavior observed by uh, Hensley in 1967. So the idea is if you watch people playing a dice-based game, maybe you're in a casino in Vegas again and you go up to a craps table, uh, whatever their true beliefs about chance or, or skill being involved in this game, and it is a game of chance, their externally visible behavior implies that they think they have some degree of control over the numbers they roll with the dice. Examples here would include uh, that people tend to roll dice more softly if they want to roll low numbers and throw the dice hard if they want to roll high numbers. They appear to concentrate in preparation for the dice throw the same way a person would concentrate before like doing a skill-based throw, like an aimed throw if they're playing darts or something. And this belief in, uh, in dice rolls as a skilled uh, activity also seemed to be present in observers because other people at the table would tend to bet with a person who appeared to be exerting more control in this way. Oh, that's fascinating. You know, I, uh, you know, I don't gamble uh, with the dice, but uh, I do throw some D20s pretty much every week uh, in Dungeons and Dragons. And I know that I do catch myself. I hadn't really thought about it before, but like if I'm rolling, especially an important D20, I'm going to I'm going to put a little time and effort into it. There's going to be a pause. I'm going to make sure my form is right. I'm going to make sure I get an appropriate clatter, you know, from that from that uh, that 20 as I give it a roll. I do exactly the same thing, and I it feels like I can roll the dice better or worse. I know that I can't. <laughs> yeah, but, I'm still going to get a natural one here and there, but but it feels better for some reason. And to be fair, dice rolls in reality are probably not perfectly random. Like uh, I think I've read about gambling cheats who, with a lot of training, claim that they they can learn ways to like hold or toss the dice so as to increase the chances of getting the roll they want. I think especially if they do things you're not allowed to do, like sliding the dice on the on the velvet instead of actually throwing it, throwing them so that they tumble. Uh, but anyway, for the vast vast majority of regular gamblers. This is not the case. People cannot do this most for the most part, and dice can be treated as effectively random. If they weren't effectively random, casinos would not use them. That's right. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. 
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Anyway, to come back to Langer's paper from uh, 75. So to test for an illusion of control, which she hypothesized, she did six experiments in which chance-based games had various elements that we would associate with skill-based games introduced. And this was her idea. It was that if you make a game feel like it is skill-based, even though it's clearly not, people will be confused into thinking that they have control over outcomes that they actually don't. Hmm. For one example, uh, one variable that is explored in this paper is the variable of competition. If you are competing against an opponent in a skill-based game, the ability of your opponent determines your likelihood of winning. Therefore, if you're placing bets on whether or not you're going to win, how much you bet will in part depend on how good your opponent is at the game. So, you know, if you're playing chess against a chess pro, you're probably going to bet less or maybe bet nothing. If you're playing chess against somebody you perceive as worse than you at chess, you will probably bet more. Of course, if it's a purely chance-based game, there is no relevant skill variable. So if you're offered the chance to bet on outcomes, your betting behavior should be based on something else, maybe social factors, maybe just baseline appetite for risk, maybe a desire to be seen by others as taking risks, etc. It should be based on something other than your uh, perception of whether you're likely to win based on how good your opponent is. That that doesn't make any difference in a chance-based game. Hmm. So in the first experiment uh, described in the study, uh, Langer had people play a purely chance-based card game. The game was high card draw between two players. No skill involved. Pure <laughs> luck of the draw. You pick a card out of the deck. Is your card higher than the other person's? Is there any room in in looking at that game to think, I'm better than other people at this? There shouldn't be. But the independent variable manipulated by the experimenters here 
was the behavior and appearance of your opponent. Do they seem confident and self-assured, or do they seem awkward and nervous and prepared to lose? In other words, are you playing against somebody who feels like a winner or not? And remember, there's no logical reason anybody should be a winner at this game. There's zero skill involved. <laughs> and yet the experiment did find that people were willing to bet significantly more against a competitor who seemed awkward and nervous than they were against a competitor who seemed outgoing and confident. Now, I think this is a really interesting result, but it's important to note the limitations of this experimental design. And Langer herself flagged some of these limitations in the paper, uh, so they, they didn't go unnoticed by the authors here. Uh, so it seems like this, it seems likely that this result could be caused by a mistaken perception that skill or control would somehow factor into this random game. But you can't be sure that's the cause guiding the, the differences in how people bet. Uh, maybe other variables are operating here in response to the behavior and appearance of the competitor. Maybe they have to do with how the subject wants to be perceived in terms of taking risks or not. Who, who knows? There, there could be other things at work here. So that's the competition element, which Langer concludes could make a chance-based game have illusory qualities of a skill-based game. Uh, other elements like this explored in the paper are choice. So the idea is if you give people a choice over, say, which lottery ticket they receive, of course, it makes no difference in the probability of winning. It increases their feeling of the likelihood of winning, uh, though with the choice element in particular, there's a study I came across from 2021. I might get into this more in the in the second episode, uh, but that uh, but that study undercuts specifically the choice variable. Uh, in particular. So whether or not choice has this effect uh, is is up for debate. But other ones explored in this paper are familiarity with the game or with elements of the game. So familiarity would be associated with a better chance of winning a skill-based game, right? If you've played mm -hmm. the game before, you're probably better at it. You're more likely to win. In a chance game, it doesn't matter. But this study found that familiarity made people more confident in their ability to win. Okay. I mean, I could see where, like, if you know the, what the odds are, even if you know the odds are slim, like you you, you, really, you do the math and you're like, all right, I have a 5% chance of pulling the right card. Um, you know, you could still, there's still plenty of room in the human psyche to lean into that and think, I've got a 5% shot. That's, that's a non-zero percent <laughs> uh, chance of winning this game. Well, and there are games that have that are largely determined by chance, but also have skill elements where familiarity can make a big difference. Like I would say familiarity with playing poker probably mm -hmm. makes a big difference in how well you do, because how well you do in poker is is a mix of chance and skill. You know, it's the chance of what cards you draw, but also the skill of like your betting strategy and all that. Yeah, I guess it also comes down to like, what does it mean to lose in a given game? I haven't played much in the way of poker, but it's my understanding, like a game like poker, gambling games where actual money of any value is involved, losing just sucks. There's no fun in losing. If you're losing at the game, you're not having a good time. Whereas, and certainly you can take that attitude, unfortunately, into any gaming scenario. Mm. But if you're doing it right, losing or, or rolling poorly, whatever the, the exact um, form this takes in, say, Dungeons and Dragons, is not necessarily bad. It can be a great moment for character development, storytelling, and so forth. Right. Uh, 
likewise, just for fun games. Uh, like I'll play a bit of this, uh, this little phone game called Marvel Snap. It's pretty fun. Uh, you're not betting any real money on it. Uh, and sometimes like losing, sometimes losing is like a little irritating, but other times if it's, it's amusing to see how the other person beats you. And then sometimes, you know, you know, okay, I've got a very slim chance of pulling this combo off or, you know, this real Hail Mary uh, maneuver to use a sports term. But sometimes you go for it because you don't have money on the line. It's not the end of the world. If you lose, you're likely to lose. But if there's a small chance you're going to pull off something amazing, you go for it. And you do that in games like Dungeons and Dragons as well. That's right. And this highlights that, I mean, a, a big thing about studying games is that there are different reasons people play games and not all games are, are just about winning. Uh, I think one reason that uh, games like this, if you're going to study them in terms of trying to find people's real motivation to win, you need things like cash prizes because that like makes the winning condition really meaningful. Yeah. Because, yeah, if there's not money involved, I'm just like, I don't know. It's fun to, to just play a weird game and lose and not know what you're doing. I mean, Whereas playing a game. game like High Card Draw, it's only going to be interesting if there's money involved, I'm assuming. Exactly. But anyway, coming back. So this study found um, in its experiments that familiarity with a game, even a game purely of chance, where familiarity would actually not make any difference at all, people still seem to behave as if they thought it made a difference. Hmm. Another variable looked at in these experiments was uh, the subject's level of involvement. You know, how involved or hands-on are you with the process that decides the winner? Um, so, in general, this original 1975 paper found that, yes, experiments do find that adding in elements that superficially remind people of skill-based games increases the illusion of control. And the research did not stop there. There have been many, many studies on the illusion of control in the, the decades since this uh, paper from 1975. And there have been sort of three major branches uh, of investigatory methods to look into the evidence for the illusion of control and to understand what variables influence when and the extent to which it occurs. There's also been some criticism of the idea and uh, maybe... Uh, looking at different theoretical ways to make sense of the results of these kinds of experiments. And so I think maybe in the next episode, we're going to talk a bit more about the research history, talk about what some variables are that determine when people experience an illusion of control and look at uh, criticisms of the concept. All right. So join us uh, next time as we'll continue this, uh, this look at the illusion of control. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from everyone out, out there because, you know, we've, we've touched on some some very basic ideas about human nature here uh, and specific uh, examples of gameplay and gambling and so forth. And so I know uh, you're going to have a lot of thoughts and we'd love to hear from you. So write in. Um, we'll have that email address here at the end of the episode. Uh, a couple other ways to interact with the show. I don't think I've mentioned these recently, but if you are on the Facebook, there is a Facebook group for Stuff to Blow Your Mind. It is the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. Uh, you just go there, you ask to be admitted, and if I think you have to answer a question. That's uh, a very easy one. You should be able to get if you listen to the show. Uh, also, there is a Discord uh, server, room, what have you, for uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. If you want to join that, email us, and we'll send you the link. It's that simple. And let's see, what else should we mention? Oh, yeah, uh, th thanks to everyone out there who... Uh, 
who jumped in and uh, gave us a nice rating and review on the various places where you can do that. And uh, yeah, uh, continue to, uh, to to ask for that if you if you haven't rated the show and given us a sprinkling of stars. Uh, go ahead and do that because that helps us out. And uh, likewise, if you listen to the show on an Apple device, uh, Apple Podcasts, and so forth, maybe pop in and just make sure that you're still subscribed and that you are receiving downloads. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown? Sleep tight stories. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.